Welcome, listeners, to what is sure to be a very unique chapter of Southern Grimoire. It's been some time since I've released a new episode, and for that I apologize. Between the holidays and family obligations, I've found it difficult to find time to research and write. And that's what makes this particular episode so special. It wasn't necessary for me to spend hours researching and brushing up on facts, because I know the story by heart. Though it's different than my usual subjects, I think you'll find it fits into a special place in the grimoire. It has mystery, murder, and a twisted cast of characters that have become the stuff of small-town legends. My best friend and I have known each other since May of 2011. It's fair to say that he knows me better than anyone, except perhaps my husband. My friend lives in Indiana, so our relationship is maintained through letters, emails, and phone calls. When I shuffle through the day's mail and see his familiar script scrawled on the back of an envelope, I'm always excited. We have been through a lot together. The death of my first love, the prolonged illness and death of his brother, breakups, makeups, moves across states, and career changes. When my husband and I were robbed, my best friend sent money to help us recoup our losses. It wasn't much, but he sent all that he had. When I found out I was pregnant with my first son, he taught himself how to crochet expressly for the purpose of making him his first baby blanket. Typical best friend stuff, I'm sure you're thinking. But our friendship has one unique and very important difference. My best friend, Shannon Agofsky, is on death row in USP Terre Haute. He is a wrongfully convicted inmate, and for the last six years, I, along with many others, have been researching his case, conducting interviews, and pushing for a new trial. His case is a complex one that spans three states and multiple investigative agencies. As I said, it has a cast of characters to rival most Hollywood blockbusters, with guest appearances from psychics, eccentric detectives, money launderers, hardened criminals, conspiracy theorists, and a drug ring allegedly associated with the Clintons. Yes, those Clintons, in good old Mena, Arkansas. But that barely even scratches the surface. There are hundreds of files I haven't even touched yet. The floor of my study is largely obscured by boxes of witness statements, court testimonies, and evidence reports. There is much of Shannon's story left to discover, and it's a story that I'm excited to have a part in, and that I'm excited to share with you. By sharing Shannon's case, I hope to disentangle facts from fiction, exposing the difference between the real story and the story that was told to the public. Legally, there is much I cannot share. Some evidence is still under seal, and revealing it could hurt my friend's case rather than help it. But every darkened corner I can shed light into, I will. Shannon's story is one that affects all of us, whether we realize it or not, and it's one that needs to be told. In the meantime, I would ask that you keep an open mind. Even a novice Google detective will be able to find questionable, and even negative, opinions on the internet about Shannon. From the years I have known him, Shannon has always been a brutally honest man, sometimes to the point of callousness. He would be the first person to tell you he is not an angel, 
but does that make him guilty of the things he was accused of? I encourage everyone to do research, to look at all the facts available, to read and consider the story I have to tell and ask, was justice really served here? When I first met Shannon, even I had my doubts about him. When we started corresponding, I was only 20 years old, and I knew that I had to proceed with a certain amount of objectivity and caution. I had decided to write to an inmate after the urging of one of my college professors, who had extensively worked with inmates himself. My professor felt it would be beneficial to me, an antisocial academic more interested in studying people than befriending them, and it would be beneficial to the inmate as well. I eventually agreed on two conditions. Whoever I wrote to had to be similar to myself in terms of interest and temperament, and they had to be in jail for life. I didn't relish the thought of my pen pal being released and suddenly showing up at my doorstep. Shannon fit the bill. His original inmate profile quoted one of my favorite Keats poems, and I decided it was fate. For the first couple of months, we wrote each other nearly every other day, but never discussed his case. I wanted to get to know him as a person first, and also to try and gauge whether or not he wanted anything from me. I'd been warned that many prisoners rarely want friendship, but instead seek out prey. I can say with all honesty that Shannon never asked me for anything then, and he still hasn't to this day. That isn't to say that he has never asked anyone for money or favors. He certainly has, by his own admission. But our relationship has always been built on mutual respect and admiration. We spent our earliest letters writing about books, music, art, and bonding over our similar dark senses of humor. It wasn't until some time after my 21st birthday that I decided to ask about why he was in prison. I avoided researching it myself, instead waiting to absorb what he had to say. Asking about his case ended up being one of the most largely important questions of my life, and it has led me on quite an adventure. An adventure that is ongoing, and one that I would like to invite you to take also, dear listener, should you accept. The story begins, as so many often do, on a dark and stormy night. The evening of October 5th, 1989 was unremarkable by most respects in the sleepy little town of Knoll, Missouri. It had been unseasonably hot that fall, but that night the clouds were fat, slung low in the sky and threatening rain. Despite the rumbling from the heavens, the storm held off, but a storm of a different kind was brewing. While most of the town drifted off to sleep, electricity crackled through the air, lighting the way for those who had more sinister intentions for the night. On the morning of October 6th, Pauline Coonrod arrived at the State Bank of Knoll to report for her normal shift as cashier. When she walked up to the entrance, however, it was clear that the doors were already unlocked. It didn't take her long to realize that the bank had been robbed in the night. The usually pristine floor was littered with overturned teller drawers. Empty bullet casings were strewn underneath the lone surveillance camera, which had been shot at and spray-painted black. The camera was still pointed toward the vault, wide open with the keys hanging from the lock. Coonrod called the police, and federal agents arrived on the scene alongside local law enforcement. 
it was discovered that over $70,000 was missing, along with the bank's president, a man by the name of Dan Short. Short quickly became the main suspect, especially after his truck was found about three miles outside of town with several rolls of bank-packaged coins in the truck bed. The town was abuzz with theories and speculation. From the beginning, Short's ex-wife was sure that he had met with foul play. She had worked with him at the bank for years and had never known him to do anything questionable or unethical. Her suspicions were validated on October 11th when Short's badly decomposed remains were found floating in Grand Lake, Oklahoma, near Cowskin Bridge in Ottawa County. Short had been bound to a chair, a chain hoist attached to his left ankle with a generous amount of gray duct tape. He had been weighted down with a concrete block and thrown into the lake, presumably while still alive. The residents of Knoll were horrified. Dan Short had been a respected and well-liked man. The town had never seen a crime this heinous, and it was more frightening still because investigators had no leads. Whoever had done this was still free, very likely living and working alongside them. The pressure on law enforcement was overwhelming, and the longer they went without finding a suspect, the more the town talked. This is where things start to go awry. It is extremely important to note that during the most initial stages of the FBI's investigation, not one single person interviewed had seen anything helpful. There were no witnesses to Dan Short's supposed abduction or murder. One of Short's neighbors, a woman by the name of Carol Dryden Carnahan, told the investigators that during the night of October 5th, she saw headlights going past her windows. About 30 minutes later, she heard a vehicle start up and then drive away, near the general direction of Short's house. She said she saw no one and didn't recognize any vehicles. Yet eight years later, she went on the witness stand to identify Shannon Agofsky as one of the men outside Short's home. Carnahan would not be the only witness to miraculously remember vivid details years after the crime but she was among scores of interview subjects who knew nothing of substance in the days immediately following the tragedy. In fact, none of the interviews initially conducted implicated Shannon or his brother Joseph in any way. The Agofsky brothers weren't on the list of possible suspects until the FBI reported they had received an anonymous phone call claiming that the boys had been seen with an awful lot of change. A large amount of coins had disappeared from the vault during the robbery, and the police were quick to investigate the alleged tip. Joseph, known as Joe to his family and friends, was questioned first. He had an alibi for the night of the crime, confirmed by his girlfriend who lived about 40 miles away from Knoll. Joe was cooperative with law enforcement from the beginning, and was noted as being cordial and accommodating to police. He told officers that he owned two forty-five handguns, like the one that had been used to shoot at the bank's surveillance camera. The investigators asked if they could test the guns for a match, and Joe agreed. He gave them directions to his home in Knoll, and told them that his younger brother Shannon would be there to meet them. Shannon was only 18 years old at the time of the crime and the resulting investigation. Like many teenage boys, he was cocky, confident, 
and not without a certain disregard for authority. All that in mind, he was polite when the police showed up at his brother's door, and he showed them where the handguns were kept. When asked about his whereabouts the night of the kidnapping, he told them that he had a martial arts class at the local dojo, and then spent the rest of the evening at his mother's house, which both his karate instructor and his mother confirmed. After thorough questioning, the police learned that Shannon and Joe had no financial reason to be involved in such a dangerous crime. Both brothers and their mother Sheila had received substantial settlements after their father had died tragically in a plane crash. Considering the cooperation of both brothers, their lack of motive, their confirmed alibis, and the fact that Joe's guns were not a match for the bullets found at the crime scene, the investigators decided to focus on other leads. There was no shortage of potential suspects. Investigators discovered that the State Bank of Knoll was in serious trouble. They had been accused of mishandling money, and after three separate audits, they had been reduced to weak bank status. Short's ex-wife and daughter had both said that in the weeks before his death, he had commented that he was uneasy about the bank's affairs and his involvement in them. Joyce Short herself was considered a suspect, since she had been the beneficiary of two life insurance policies in Short's name. Frank Sanders, a local man who had already been convicted of bank robbery, was also on law enforcement's radar. Anonymous calls kept coming in, implicating everyone from a former police informant to Bruce Moore, a dangerous criminal once on the FBI's most wanted list. After over a year of interviews, lead investigator Agent Liddell Farley wrote in a report that he suspected that a red-bearded man, a clean-shaven man with long, straight hair, and a woman were responsible for the robbery. Not one of those descriptions matched either of the Agofsky brothers. Somewhere along the way, for reasons no one may ever be able to understand, Farley changed his mind. Maybe he was frustrated at the lack of evidence. Maybe he was buckling under the pressure and sideways glances from distrusting residents of small-town Knoll. Maybe he was just tired of being there and wanted to go home. I just don't know. What I do know is that Farley decided that the Agofsky brothers were the men he liked for the crime after speaking with Gant Sanders, the son of bank robber Frank Sanders. But Agent Farley didn't come to this conclusion after he spoke to Gant for the first time. In fact, Gant denied that he had any knowledge connecting the brothers to the crime. Gant Sanders fervently denied it during two more subsequent interviews. It wasn't until the fourth interview that Sanders suddenly changed his story. And after this sudden bout of clarity, Sanders received probation for a string of burglaries that he had been involved in, along with money for a new apartment. Sanders would not be the only informant to receive money and favors in exchange for implicating the Agofskys, a fact that Agent Farley would begrudgingly admit to in a later trial. But Sanders' statement wouldn't be enough. He could be compelled and coached into a convincing witness, but there had to be evidence to support his story. By now, I'm sure it's becoming apparent. Something as trivial as evidence wouldn't get in the way of the FBI's tenacity. Agent Farley would prove to be the ringmaster, with an entire sideshow of bumbling investigators and ham-fisted informants following his lead. The circus was about to begin. 
The investigation and eventual trial against Shannon Wayne Nagoski was a circus, with no shortage of clowns, magicians, and sideshow attractions. I'll seek to prove this to you, listener. With a thorough analysis of the evidence given against Shannon at his Oklahoma trial, Though it proved to be quite a show, in the end I hope you'll see that's all it was. A manufactured production. First I will introduce to you the clowns. I feel it's pertinent to establish right off the bat that the state presented no eyewitnesses to Dan Short's abduction or murder, or the robbery of the bank. The prosecutors relied solely on circumstantial evidence questionable witness statements, and the testimony of jailhouse snitches. The parade of fools began with several persons who said they saw or heard suspicious activity in Knoll around the time of the crime. Janice Houston lived on Highway 59 in Knoll, Missouri. Sometime after she retired to bed on the evening of October 5th, the sound of something hitting her chain-link fence woke her. She said she looked out the window and saw two men engaged in some sort of scuffle. She described a shorter man, around five foot nine, wrestling with a much taller man who had his hands tied behind his back. Neither one of these men, according to her statement, resembled the Agofsky brothers. Houston didn't report this sighting to the FBI until over two years after the incident, though she had spoken to police officers in the days immediately following the crime. Defense motions to strike Houston's testimony from the record for irrelevance were denied. Shirley Butler testified at trial that at 3.45 a.m. on October 6th, she saw a truck and a van parked on the number 10 bridge near the place where Mr. Short would have been thrown to his death. As she got closer, she saw activity to the right of the vehicles but was unable to make out anything clearly. Butler did not report this sighting to the FBI for over six months after the crime, and even then she did not give a specific time or date. Those specifics emerged only after the Grand Magician Special Agent Liddell Farley joined the show, but you'll hear more about his act later. A truck driver named David McNeely testified at trial that he saw a brown, two-toned van and a small pickup truck driving down Main Street Knoll in the wee hours of the morning of October 6th. He said that the two occupants, whom he described as white males, turned left onto King's Highway. However, when McNeely first spoke with the FBI, five months after the robbery, he described the van as being plain in color and was unable to describe the occupants at all. Buddy Mills testified, despite intense defense objection after the prosecutors introduced a hypnotist as their special guest. Mills had his memory hypnotically refreshed in preparation to take the stand. The doctor who administered the hypnosis said that he had turned over hypnotic control to an FBI agent who participated in the exercise and subsequent questioning. Mills said that he saw three vehicles at a traffic light heading out of Knoll around 3 a.m. on the morning of October 6th. The first vehicle resembled Dan Short's. Mills did not pay attention to the other vehicles, but said as he continued south, a small blue Chevrolet Love pickup with Oklahoma plates passed him. The driver, Mills said, had sandy hair and a reddish-brown beard. Despite thorough hypnosis, he was unable to remember the license plate number. 
Carol Dryden Carnahan surprised the defense mid-trial when she identified Shannon Agofsky as the driver of a blue pickup truck that turned around in her driveway a few days before Mr. Short was abducted and killed. However, in the eight years preceding Shannon's Oklahoma trial, Carnahan never made such an identification despite being interviewed multiple times. Upon cross-examination, her story continued to change. She admitted that when she initially spoke with FBI agents, she described the driver of the blue pickup as a man of about 30, wearing a baseball cap. Shannon was only 18 at the time of the crime. Wayne Boutain, the man who testified that the chain hoist recovered with the body had belonged to him, was the next to pile out of the clown car. Boutain said he could tell the hoist was his because of a chip in the gear, and that he had called and reported the hoist stolen to someone named Robert several days before the bank robbery. He also said he suspected the Agofsky brothers of the theft and indicated as much at the time. However, the only police report that could be found was taken by one Officer John Wilson, dated several weeks after the crime. Boutain, who had several prior convictions, had fled to Knoll to avoid probation violation proceedings in his native Minnesota. After he gave his statements against Shannon, he returned to his home state. I'm sure you'll find it no coincidence that immediately after, Boutain was discharged from probation and began work as a paid drug informant for Minnesota authorities. Gant Sanders was originally contacted by the FBI immediately after the murder. They were interested in learning more about his father, Frank, who had been convicted for kidnapping and robbing a bank president several years before. During Sanders' third FBI interview, he was living with Shannon and denied that Shannon or Joe had any ties to the crime, as he had done in two previous interviews. It wasn't until Agent Farley broke protocol and decided to interview Sanders on his own that the story changed. In exchange for implicating the Agofsky brothers for the crime, Sanders received probation for a string of burglaries, received money for a new apartment, an additional $500 to aid with relocation, and had his first month's rent covered. Wayne Pennington, who was serving time for postal robbery, was the next clown slated to perform in the circus. He met Shannon's acquaintance in 1990 when they were incarcerated together. It didn't take long for him to learn exactly why Shannon was in jail and that the trial was sure to be high profile. Pennington wrote a letter to the FBI saying that he was interested and willing to provide information to them. It's important to note that Pennington had previously testified against other participants in a separate bank robbery in exchange for five years off his sentence. Pennington even acknowledged that his friend, also an inmate, had told him after Shannon arrived that if he testified against him, he would probably get a first-class ticket home. Pennington also acknowledged that he later wrote to Joyce Short, Dan Short's ex-wife, attempting to extort money from her and threatening to recant his testimony. He did the same with one of the prosecutors from the Oklahoma case. It's important to mention again that no matter what was said at trial, Shannon did, in fact, have a strong alibi. Shannon's karate teacher, Gerald Edmondson, had records and a signed roll sheet indicating that Shannon had been in class on the evening of October 5th. 
Shannon stayed after the class was over to chat with Edmondson and left for home around the same time Dan Short was being abducted. Later that same evening, a man named Buddy Cusat saw Shannon at home in bed, fast asleep, when he stopped by to visit Sheila Agofsky around 11.30 p.m. to see about some work she had done to her bathroom. Next to appear in the circus was the magicians. Over the course of the investigation and subsequent trials, an overwhelming amount of evidence was mishandled, damaged, lost, and at times, just plain falsified. Taking that into account, along with all of the witnesses who quite suddenly and miraculously recovered memories about the crime that hadn't previously existed, one would have to agree that the local police and federal agents had a certain knack for sleight of hand, among other things. Before the FBI's evidence collection team decided to process Dan Short's house for evidence, countless people had been allowed to tramp through. There were muddy footprints throughout the home, and the authorities even allowed Short's ex-wife and daughter to spend the night there. Because the crime scene had been so obviously compromised, eventually the FBI decided that any evidence that may have existed there had most likely been obliterated. They did dust for fingerprints, but not until over a week after the bank robbery. That would not be the first or last time that potential evidence was to be grievously mishandled by the FBI. The key piece of evidence used against Shannon at trial was subject to such gross and blatant mishandling that I can scarcely wrap my head around why it was admissible. The prosecution held on to the duct tape evidence, like a ravenous dog with a bone. This was despite the fact that the duct tape from the scene pulled from Short's body, the chair itself, the chain hoist, and the cinder block, was thrown into the back of Special Agent Lawrence Nolan's car without placing them into any sort of evidence bag or protective covering. Nolan wrote his initials directly on the section of tape on the reverse side where the patent fingerprints appeared. Once back at the FBI field office, Nolan Farley and Special Agent Edwards none of whom was trained as an evidence analysis specialist, disassembled and reassembled the chair used in the crime in several configurations, unable to figure out how to make the pieces fit. During this process, the agents put several sections of the duct tape on the carpet, sticky side down, effectively tainting important evidence. An additional piece of duct tape would be used to tie Shannon to the crime a piece of duct tape that was found nearly two weeks after the robbery. A man named Rowdy Foreman lived in a mobile home near Grand Lake, not far from where Short's body surfaced. He testified that on the afternoon of October 18th, he saw a piece of duct tape down by the shore, but claimed he did not pick it up then because there were people around. He went back at dusk and picked the tape up with a pencil. He said a partial, greasy fingerprint was visible on the tape, which he put up on a shelf. During the trial, it was unclear when exactly the tape was found and when Foreman alerted the authorities, because both he and federal agents had different recollections of the event. No clear records of the fine had been kept, despite the apparent importance of this evidence. What is clear is that Foreman received a cash reward for testifying at trial. Enter Russell Davey, 
a self-proclaimed expert fingerprint analyst for the FBI. Davy destroyed every single patent print on the sections of duct tape by washing the tape with gentian violet, a dye that is sometimes used to raise prints where none are visible to the naked eye. The dye completely dissolved the adhesive and any print impressions that existed on the tape. Davy ended up making his comparisons, and ultimately, his positive identification of Shannon's prints, solely from photographs of the duct tape, and not the actual evidence. During his initial comparisons, in the spring of 1990, Russell Davy used the photographs to check for similarities against the prints of multiple suspects, including Shannon Nagofsky's. No match was made. At a later date, after the urging of Special Agent Farley, Davy re-examined the photographs and said that he now found seven points of comparison that were similar to Shannon's prints. Keith Fairchild, an independent print analysis expert, reviewed the fingerprint evidence and the FBI's methods on behalf of Shannon's defense. Fairchild said he could think of no legitimate reason why an experienced and qualified analyst would use gentian violet to look for prints on a section of tape where visible patent prints already existed. Fairchild also said his analysis of the print evidence was hampered because the FBI couldn't produce the original photos taken of the tape. Print comparisons were being made from photographs of photographs, comparisons that sent a man to jail for life. When Fairchild compared Shannon's prints to the photographs, he only found four points of comparison, not the seven that Davy reported. Four points is not enough to make a positive match. Fairchild also observed foreign marks on the print photographs, which were unidentifiable and skewed the ability to make a clear print comparison. Taking this into account, along with the obliteration of evidence due to the use of the gentian violet, Fairchild said the print evidence was virtually unreliable. Agent Liddell Farley proved to be a more capable magician than either Nolan or Davy. He was able to make 14 sets of prints appear out of thin air. At the beginning of the trial, the defense was told that there were no prints from the scene at Short's home. However, the night before Davy was supposed to testify, there suddenly were. After the trial, Davy is on record as saying, during an overnight recess in testimony at the Oklahoma trial in 1997, I was asked by Special Agent Farley to compare the fingerprint card of Shannon Agofsky with a set of unknown prints that I was told had been lifted from the home of Bank President Dan Short. I had never seen any of these prints prior to this time. Agent Farley explained that they had been misplaced and they were now available. I made the comparisons and found no matches between Agofsky's prints and any of the unknowns. This is significant because in contrast to what the defense was originally told before trial, the print cards were lost. The fact that Davy covered up Farley's mistakes on the witness stand during the trial should be seen as a deliberate move, meant to prevent anyone from comparing the house prints with the known prints of other potential suspects, which could have eliminated Shannon as a suspect. Had the defense had access to these print cards before trial, as they should have, they could have had their analysts make comparisons against alternative suspects. 
Furthermore, if the cards were in fact lost, just to be found in the nick of time for Davy to analyze them, then Farley's conduct casts doubts on the reliability of the FBI investigation in general. Wayne Oakes and Robert Webb were the next performers at the circus, magicians of numerous yet questionable skills. They compared Shannon's hair samples with every single hair of relevance to the investigation, but were unable to produce any matches. Similarly, a van belonging to Sheila Agofsky, that the state was so desperate to tie to the crime, was gone over with a fine-tooth comb, to no avail. Not a single fiber, hair, stain, or print was found. But, as you can imagine, that did nothing to quell the FBI's determination. Webb then turned to a forensic method called end-matching, which is no longer used in modern court cases due to its unreliability. Webb testified that he had been able to positively match the ends of the sections of duct tape found at the scene with the piece of duct tape discovered randomly nearly two weeks after the robbery, proving in his mind that they were from the same roll of duct tape. Webb used the highly scientific method of heating the tape in question with a hairdryer, flattening out the ends with his bare hands, and then sticking them together to perform his scientific match. A very reliable method, I'm sure. After Webb's performance came numerous sideshow attractions. Michael Dean, an acquaintance of the Agofsky brothers, came forward to reveal that Agent Farley harassed him for nearly a year due to his association with the family. He said that Gans Sanders had told him that Farley had threatened to prosecute Sanders for the Knoll Bank case if he didn't change his story to cooperate with the prosecution. A crook by the name of William Embry, an admitted bank robber, contacted federal authorities soon after the robbery and murder of Dan Short. He said that Frank Sanders had spoken to him about a plan to rob the state bank of Knoll and had asked if he would be interested in participating. This version of events certainly seems possible when given the fact that Frank Sanders was involved in the construction of the bank and had access to the floor plans, not to mention his previous criminal history. This also supports Gant Sanders' willingness to comply with Farley's coaching to give fabricated and incriminating testimony against the Agofsky brothers in order to divert well-founded suspicions away from his own family. A woman named Drusilla Cothenbutal came forward with an interesting addition to our little circus. Agent Farley had asked her to secure a bail bond for one Kenneth Fitzpatrick, a man who had testified in the Missouri federal trial against Shannon's brother Joe. She found the request highly unusual, as Fitzpatrick was already out of custody. Farley explained that Fitzpatrick was a material witness but also had pending prosecution for drug charges. Farley was evasive with Cothan Budal's questions, and it soon became obvious to her that Farley had employed unauthorized and even illegal means to free Fitzpatrick, and he was seeking a bail bond to cover his tracks. He asked her to exempt Fitzpatrick from the traditional reporting requirement and then paid half of the man's bond fee. When Cothan Budal met with Fitzpatrick to discuss the conditions of his bail, she said that he seemed to be exceedingly nervous. She recounted the conversation as follows. Kenneth said that he was testifying against these boys who were on trial for murder and bank robbery, 
I asked him if he was involved with them. He said no, he didn't know them. So, of course, I asked how he could testify if he didn't know them. He said that while in Greene County Jail on the drug charge, the FBI approached him and told him that he was going to testify for them in this case, and more or less told him what to say. They told him that if he did this, his drug charges would go away, and if he didn't, he would not live long enough to get out of prison. I asked him why he thought that, and he said it was because that's what he was told by Agent Farley. Please, if you will, welcome yet another colorful character to the sideshow, Cliff Everhart. Everhart was an investigator assigned to the case by the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System. He was a former police officer who was secretly working as a small-time sheriff at the time he was working for OIDS. Though he was supposed to be working to help the Agofsky's defense, he would prove to be entirely abysmal at his job. In fact, a few years after the brothers' trial, he was prosecuted for gambling while on duty. While working for the Agofsky case, months would pass by without progress. He embellished facts, fabricated information, and ignored the attorney's requests and directions. Instead of focusing on necessary tasks, Everhart would investigate low-priority matters simply because he found them to be more interesting. For example, he spent valuable time exploring the theory that the victim's body was really that of an unidentified black woman, although no valid information known to Shannon's attorneys ever corroborated such a theory. There were rampant rumors that Everhart had drawn guns on people he was meant to be interviewing. A story traveled around OIDS that he was involved in a murder at a motel. Attorney James Rowan, who worked for the Capitol Trails Division during the Agofsky trial, recalls that Everhart had lied to him about witness interviews he was supposed to have conducted on another case. When Rowan had a second investigator check in on the witnesses, he learned that they had never even heard of Cliff Everhart. It's entirely possible and even probable, that Everhart and his questionable work practices damaged the defense's investigation, impeded their quest for pertinent evidence, and weakened Shannon's case. The rest of the evidence is, unfortunately, under seal. It remains so in order to protect innocent witnesses involved in the case. What I can tell you is that in the years since the Oklahoma trial, several people have come forward with compelling information. Some people have confessed to the crime in question and deny that the Agofsky brothers had any part in it. Others are innocent bystanders and witnesses whose testimony corroborates these facts. In summation, the state's case rested on evidence that was dubious at best and conjured up by agents that consistently relied on unauthorized, unethical, and illegal methods of investigation. The fact that the Agofskis had supposedly confessed their involvement to fellow prisoners was also extremely important to the jury when considering their verdict. Had they known all of the relevant facts, including the bribery and favors extended to the snitches by the FBI, the FBI's suppression and mishandling of evidence, the witness coaching and heavy-handed tactics employed to secure cooperation, the jury would have rejected these highly damaging and altogether false testimonies. Based on these facts, I truly and most sincerely believe that Shannon Agofsky is entitled to a new trial. There is a reasonable probability that, if the state had been forced to disclose all of the information it purposefully withheld, the cumulative effect would have changed the outcome of the trial. Joseph Agofsky, Shannon's brother, was an innocent man. He died in prison, 
without ever finding justice, without ever being reunited with his family. There is still time for Shannon, but it is running out. All he can do is place his faith in people, in the lawyers who have been battling so tirelessly to secure a new trial, in a young writer from Oklahoma who has stood by him for years and fought, often unsuccessfully, to share his story and make his voice heard. That's all for this chapter of the Grimoire, dear listener. But that's not all of Shannon's story. I hope that you'll join me next time for part two of Stories from Death Row. Until next time, always remember, there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by light. <laughs>